It's Monday, August 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Two conventions down, and we are on to the general election. The GOP convention was not the optimistic and light affair that Trump had hoped for. Instead, it tried to paint a picture of lawlessness and economic decline if Biden were to be elected. And the coronavirus pandemic was talked about as if it was in the past tense. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for a breakdown. Next, some new clues are emerging as to why the coronavirus hits men harder. Simply put, men produce a weaker immune response to the virus than women do, and the findings could have implications for vaccine dosing. Women produce more T-cells and a stronger immune response, possibly because their bodies are primed to fight pathogens that threaten their unborn children. Apurva Mandavilli, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for more. Finally, are you getting ready to travel during the pandemic? There's a lot to know about testing before you get out there. Some places require proof of a negative test before you arrive, and other locations require that you quarantine before you can move freely. There's also the question of timing so you can get your results in time. Natalie Compton, reporter at the Washington Post, tells us what you need to know. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You saw when it was over? The thugs! outside because the Democratic mayor of Washington, D.C. It's another Democrat that's not believing in law and order. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Ginger, let's go over the Republican convention. We just went through two weeks of conventions. First things first, the ratings game. It turned out that the Democrats on traditional outlets, you know, just the broadcast and cable media, it seemed that, that the Democrats seemed to edge out the Republicans. But when you factor in online viewing, the president was touting those numbers, claiming the big win there. We know on the traditional broadcast cable front monitored by an outside source that Democrats did get more eyeballs on their convention. And Republicans have pointed to the president's own live stream where they know the viewer numbers is evidence that they got more. But when we're looking at these things, we can see that there was a lot of attention being paid to Democrats. And the Republicans, maybe not as much because there just wasn't a questioning or surprise factor. We saw what we expected to see, and there there wasn't really much doubt about what Trump was going to say in the end. You knew what to expect from the Republicans and with the all-virtual convention for the Democrats. It was kind of a curiosity to see how they were going to do it. So maybe that's what it was. But the ratings are so important to the president. Uh, You know, that's why I bring it up. But one of the truer numbers, I guess, is fundraising. The GOP did raise $76 million dollars to $70 million for the Democrats. So not a huge difference there, but still, they edged them out there at least. On to some other top takeaways from the convention. It was definitely not the optimistic and light convention that the president said he wanted. There was lots of talk of law and order, blaming Democrat governors and and mayors for unrest in the country. You know, the president saying, if if you elect Joe Biden, it's going to get so much worse, or this is like emblematic of what it is already. That's right. We were all going to be shocked, I think, had we actually heard an optimistic message coming out of the Republican (laughs) uh, convention, just because the president is so sort of dark and offering such a scary 
description of what America is like right now on a daily basis, it would have been a real pivot of his tone. And as you said, he was pointing to these cities. Um, Many of the speakers pointed to these cities, pointed to protests, some that are violent, riots even, to say that that's what the current state of affairs is, what it would be like if Democrats were elected, if Joe Biden were elected. But the president Um, is in charge right now. And that's right. And and we're watching this sort of message evolve. I think that that point exactly is being made. And so what we heard him saying is, well, this is just happening in Democratic cities where there's Democratic mayors and they won't let me in to fix it. If they let me in to fix it, it would be fixed, but they won't let me in to fix it. And if Joe Biden takes over, then it's Democrats everywhere in charge. It's a hard sell of a message because your point is right. You know, people realize that this is Donald Trump's America and that Joe Biden's America would look uh, different. And we heard Joe Biden Saturday. We heard him talking to the National Guard Association and saying, uh, you know, that he would oppose these types of protests, but he would not be using the National Guard in a way that that they weren't meant to. So different messages, different tones, different approaches. And Donald Trump really thinking that this sort of, you know, banging the drum on what he calls law and order messaging is going to going to scare people and is going to win him votes. Coronavirus seemed to be very much in their rear view at the GOP convention. We have almost 6 million confirmed cases in the United States right now, over 180 deaths. But everything about coronavirus was kind of talked about in the past tense, the successful fight, vaccine coming very soon. And then you saw it at the live events, at least lots of people, very little social distancing, almost no mask wearing. That's right. We saw the president's, uh, one of his top economic advisors, Kudlow, using past tense words to describe coronavirus. You saw these big crowds of people with very little masks on. The president then had a rally on Friday afternoon in New Hampshire, thousand people in an airport hangar with almost no mask wearing. So it did feel like it was in the past. And the messaging that we heard from Republicans was that the president should be lauded for how coronavirus was handled, that it was a success for him, that he did great things for America. And I think that was really something they were trying to to drive at the whole convention, that the coronavirus response was a success as Democrats were saying it was a failure. All in all, how damaging was this to Joe Biden? They kept calling him the uh, Joe Biden was the Trojan horse for socialism. I think the struggle that we're seeing President Trump and his campaign have with Joe Biden is most of their attacks aren't landing. He's been calling him a Trojan horse or Sleepy Joe for months now, and it doesn't appear to be sticking. And that's because most voters know Joe Biden. The voters know who he is. They've seen him in the public view for such a long time. I'm thinking of a a line in the president's speech where he said Joe Biden has spent his 47 years in public life trying to hurt blacks or African-Americans in America, which, you know, anyone who watched the last administration would know he served as a vice president under the nation's first black president. That's going to be a hard sell to people that he's sort of undermining black Americans. So that's really Trump's struggle. and, And I think that we didn't see anything new that would think that he could maybe get beyond that struggle. We have been seeing a lot of violence and a lot of protests. President Trump uh, over the weekend said he's going to visit Kenosha on Tuesday. He's going to meet with law enforcement, survey some of the damage. This could be an opportunity for the president to address all of these issues. We would expect to hear the president continue with the same tone and message that he's had on Kenosha and on places like Portland 
He sees his role as being one to sort of put down protest. He thinks that they uh, should use force to put down these protests to stop them, that the National Guard, that even the military should be involved. He very much bemoans the protesters, speaks ill of them. And I expect that in going so directly to the place where these are happening, we could see some of it even more inflamed instead of calmed people who will become angry that he's there. Um, and, and, you know, it could be a real tinderbox going forward, I would be surprised if his tone changed at all. Well, we'll see how the president handles it come Tuesday. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. They looked at about 100 men and women overall, so it's not a huge study, but they did get a lot of really nice detail that told them that men, especially older men, just don't seem to be producing a strong and immune response to the coronavirus. Joining us now is Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Apoorva. Happy to be here. We now have the first study that has looked at the immune response to coronavirus, to COVID-19, by sex. And it's giving us a clue as to why men are hit harder. Specifically, older men are up to twice as likely to become severely sick or to die as women of the same age. So, Apoorva, tell us about this study and what we're finding about why men are getting affected a little bit more on this. So we've been seeing that men are much more likely to get sick and to die, but there haven't been a lot of explanations for why that is. And so what these researchers did is they actually looked at patients in the hospital and they collected all kinds of samples from them, you know, blood, saliva, urine. And they looked at a whole bunch of markers of the immune system. They looked at, you know, how good the immune response is in these men and women. They looked at about 100 men and women overall, so it's not a huge study. But they did get a lot of really nice detail that told them that men, especially older men, just don't seem to be producing as strong an immune response to the coronavirus as women. And that might explain why they're getting so sick and why they're dying in greater numbers. Specifically, women's bodies are producing more of the T cells, which is important when it comes to fighting off infections. You know, we've been talking about this for some time on the podcast already. You know, there's your antibodies, your B cells and your T cells, and the T cells kill infected cells and can stop an infection from spreading. So men are showing a weaker activation of these T-cells. You know, we've seen this in other diseases too. This isn't the first time that this kind of phenomenon has been observed. We've seen, even with things like the flu vaccine, with the hepatitis B vaccine, women just respond much more strongly. And part of that might be because they've sort of evolved to have these really strong immune responses because they might need to protect their unborn children or their newborn children if they're nursing their babies. So they just have these very strong immune reactions. That can also work against them in the long term. Women are much more likely to have autoimmune diseases where the immune system sort of turns against you. But in the short term, you know, if you're just encountering a virus, it can be a real advantage that these T cells sort of ramp up and fight the enemy, the virus in this case. And it's important to get this type of data when it comes to sex, because it could influence decisions about vaccine doses. 
Exactly. They notice that these men are not producing very strong immune responses. So it may be that older men especially need a bit of extra help. They may need an extra dose of the vaccine or they may need, you know, a booster shot or an adjuvant, which are these ingredients that you add to have vaccines work even better. Or it may be that women need fewer doses, but it at the very least tells us that sex, gender is a variable that vaccine studies should be taking into account. When it comes to vaccines and the immune response that it elicits in the body? Is it specifically antibodies that it's making the body make, or is it the B cells and T cells? Do we know how that works? It's all of it. And these companies that are testing vaccines are going to be looking at all of those things. They're going to be looking at what kind of antibodies are produced. They're going to be looking at whether the body produces a strong B cell and T cell immune response. Antibodies are a little easier to test. T cells and B cells take a lot more time, but this is really valuable information. And so they will be looking at all of those things. And, you know, as part of my story, I did reach out to some vaccine companies to ask, are you doing this now? Are you looking at the results and thinking about how men and women are different? Are you looking at the participants' sex and racial and ethnic backgrounds and all of those things? And I'm sure you can guess, but the answer is not really, not yet. Really? Well, I mean, we just got some news about how some of the vaccine candidates have released data about older Americans just in general. The vaccines are producing an immune response in uh, older people just as it would younger people. But yeah, they didn't mention anything about gender differences. So, I mean, I, I would think they'd be trying to do as much of that as possible. You would think that, you would hope that, but it's not really happening yet. I mean, they are collecting information on older people because it's been clear from the start that the risk of severe illness and death really goes up with age. So it's good that they're looking at older people as a subgroup and looking at you know how well they respond. But these data are telling us that it's not enough to just look at older people as a homogeneous group. It might be very different for older men than it is for older women. Apoorva Mandavili, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Because the testing landscape is so different depending on where you live, your primary care provider should know what the best options are for you. And if that doesn't work for you, you should look at both your city or your state health department website. Joining us now is Natalie Compton, reporter at the Washington Post travel destination, by the way. Thanks for joining us, Natalie. Thank you. We wanted to talk about travel amid the coronavirus pandemic right now. Just a very quick story. I had been planning a trip for several months. I was going to go to Hawaii for vacation in middle of September and we kept watching all of the rules changing. You know, you got to quarantine for mm. 14 days. I know a lot of states are doing different rules like that for a time. There was going to be a thing, you know, if you test 72 hours before, test negative, you don't have to do the quarantine. But rules kept changing so much. Unfortunately, I just had to cancel the trip. There was not much I could do. But Natalie, you wrote an article about everything we need to know about getting tested before you travel and, and kind of how to time it mm -hmm. out. You got to get that sweet spot going too, where you figure out you can get your results back before you go on your trip, things like that. So tell us about getting tested and traveling right now. I think like everything with the pandemic, this is a confusing topic that doesn't have a really straightforward answer because Getting a test is not as easy as going and getting a flu shot right now, right? They are still figuring out how to treat 
coronavirus, they're still coming out with new tests every day. In some places, you can't get a test unless you are sick or a doctor prescribes a test for you. So it is something that the CDC supports getting a test before you travel because it could reduce the risk of spreading it if you go somewhere or if you get a test when you return, then maybe you wouldn't have to quarantine in your home state. But it's not always going to be easy for travelers to do. So where do we go to get our tests? I know there's a lot of different options and all, but some of them are free testing sites. Some of them you have to pay for. Where should we be looking to see where we can actually get a test? So I spoke with Dr. Lin Chen, who is an expert in the travel medicine world, and she recommended that your first step should be to talk to your primary care provider because the testing landscape is so different depending on where you live. Your primary care provider should know what the best options are for you. And if that doesn't work for you, you should look at both your city or your state health department website because more often than not, they're going to have updated list of where you can get tests. And there are test sites popping up all over. A lot of fire departments will have them. You can find them at hospitals, different travel clinics. So it comes down to what's available near you. Can you get an appointment or is a walk-in available? And if you need one, maybe you need a doctor's prescription to be able to get it done. And the test that you want, you want to get a diagnostic test. I know there's testing for antibodies and all that, but mm-hmm. you want that diagnostic test to see if you had the virus at that moment, basically. Now, this is probably the big one is the timing of the test. And this is the one that I was so nervous about because mm-hmm. some of the rules are, you know, 72 hours before you travel and all. And it's like, well, if I take my test here, will I get my results by the time I'm flying away? That was one of the mm-hmm. big concerns. So that's the timing of it is one of the most crucial parts of it. In your case, going to a place like Hawaii or going to a place where you need to show proof that you have a negative test, it can be really tricky to plan getting the test back in time because in a lot of places, we're seeing delays in return tests. So right now, a way to have less test timing anxiety, Dr. Chen said to try to plan this out way ahead of time. And once you get your results, then you'll have to deal with, okay, I had to quarantine at home for a little longer than I expected, but that's better than being denied your trip to a place because you didn't get your test back in time. But a lot of places are looking at a four to five day return time. And that is definitely not the case everywhere, though. Some people, it takes 12 days to get a result. Some days it could be two days. So it's a lot of different things. But ask the person where you're getting a test what the estimate should be before you do this test and try to have loose travel plans in case you need to accommodate for either a positive test result or a delayed test result. Testing before and after, should you get tested upon your return from your trip? I guess that would depend on where you went. If you went to visit a small group of family, maybe not so, but if you're doing anything that's around a lot of people, you might want to get tested when you come back. I spoke with a journalist who had gone on a road trip across the country with his niece to drive her to college, and he didn't get a test before he left for that road trip. He got one at the end of his six-day trip before he could fly back to his home state of Maine, because if you don't get that test result, he would have had to do a 14-day quarantine at his home. So to avoid that, he got a COVID test on the back end of his trip. But also, like you said, if you were 
partaking in any quote unquote high risk activity while you're traveling, you might not want to bring it home to your loved ones or your place of work. So getting a test after your trip or at the end of the trip can help in that case. Natalie Compton, reporter at the Washington Post travel destination, by the way. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.